You are listening to the Hybrid Cloud Forecast Series with host Andre Tost. All right, welcome everyone. Thanks for listening in to this uh, episode of the Hybrid Cloud Forecast Podcast. Uh, today's guest is Krishna Radakanda. Krishna is an IBM fellow and he's also the CTO of IBM's Financial Services Cloud. Obviously, we'll talk a lot more about that. Um, thanks for coming, Krishna. Uh, thank you for having me, Andrew. So as always, we'll start out with introductions. So if you could tell us a bit about your professional upbringing, so to speak, kind of what got you to where you are today, and then maybe tell us a little bit about what you do at IBM. Okay. I think a good place to start is uh, where I got my PhD, right? <laughs> so I went to the University of Illinois in the middle of all the corn fields. I spent about four years there getting my master's and PhD. Uh, this was the dot-com era. Right. And uh, University of Illinois was the center of a lot of these innovation. Uh, Netscape was born there. And uh, interestingly, I think when I joined there, I joined the artificial intelligence group. And at that time, artificial intelligence was kind of like a four letter word. Right. I think, you know, people really didn't want to get into it. I think primarily because the computing power was not there. So what we could do right with artificial intelligence was really Mickey Mouse examples. And. For a PhD student, uh, we couldn't really prove anything. So it's hard to do a PhD in AI. So the PhD was in computer science then? Was that the... Actually, electrical engineering. Oh, right? okay. I think because AI kind of bridged both electrical engineering and computer science. Okay. And we looked at maybe more practical applications of what AI could do in those days, like uh, applying it in signal processing, etc. And one of my advisors was, you know, a guy who was an IBM fellow. I think his name was Richard Plahat. He retired from IBM in the early 90s and joined Illinois. So that was my first uh, introduction to IBM. And uh, he was a big reason why I joined IBM after finishing my PhD. And then I spent a lot of time in IBM research, about 10 or 15 years. And during that time, I think it was about signal processing. I think IBM was doing a number of interesting things. High definition video was coming to the fore. We started applying AI more broadly to all kinds of industry problems, financial services industry being a key area of focus because many of our clients are in this industry and everything from forecasting to project health analysis to liquidity risk, insurance cohort analysis. We built a lot of different models and somewhere I think around 2012, 2014 timeframe, we wanted to try new things with AI. So we uh, had a good group of people in research. I was a manager at the time and we looked at applying artificial intelligence to maybe more creative pursuits, things like cooking. What do you want to do for a vacation? There, there is no one answer to these things. So. We applied AI there, and then one of the things that we did was something called Blue Chef. And then when the media picked it up, I think they changed the name to Chef Watson because Watson was the big AI brand and continues to be our AI brand. And by the way, a question that I've been meaning to ask is, so when you say AI, does that include machine learning? Do you think of machine learning as a function within AI or is it a different thing? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think, you know, when we started, as I said, in the 90s, when we were doing these things, so machine learning was with a small m. We basically had some interesting statistical techniques, which, I mean, these days would look primitive. They were able to extract patterns from data. I think that's what I would say is the underpinning of AI. But the patterns that they were able to extract were limited. 
the data that they could potentially look at was limited because of computing limitations. So the definition of artificial intelligence has evolved by quite a bit over the years. What we do now, not even been imaginable 15, 20 years ago, because uh, the computing power has really, you know, explored it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I have to admit this now has intrigued me. I, I need to find out about Chef Watson because that's okay. not really interesting. Is it still around? Yeah, I think when we did it, we were partnering with this culinary institute based in New York City. And the idea is that, okay, you are a chef and you want to cook something and you want to explore the space of recipes, but you really don't know what would be something that you want to get out of this, right? I think you want a new experience potentially because, hey, I've tried lots of different things. Show me something new. But at the same time, I think everyone has a background. For example, Asian cooking is very different than European and Indian cooking has its own nuances, you know, uses of spices, etc. So what is good? There is no universal definition of what good is. So we had to come up with an AI algorithm that basically suggests some recipes that would be interesting to try. But at the same time, I think given the audience or what they would like, they also would taste good. So it's a balance of various things where there is no one answer. So there was a recipe creation engine that we open sourced and it was out on the website. You know, IBM hosted it for a while, but there were commercial applications of this as well. Companies like McCormick, for example, the spice company. There is another bigger spice company that we don't know of as much in the US, but it's the world's biggest one. It's called Jordan. It's based in Switzerland. And there was a fragrance company because fragrance smell and taste are closely interrelated. Uh, many of these algorithms went into commercial products that over the years as well. So there was an ongoing research after we left off this space that spanned another five, 10 years, and then it still continues to flourish in IBM research. Uh, it was a good space. And uh, many of the guys that we had in our team, I think they went on to good academic careers. There's a guy who's a professor in, at Illinois. There is another guy who's a professor at Harvard. So this was a really fertile area, and it was a fun experiment, I should say, Andrew. Yeah. Now I'm trying to picture whether you then tried out the recipes in the research lab, you know, whether you had cooking <laughs> evenings or something. <laughs> yeah, we, t- we tried things, right? I think, uh, interestingly enough, at some point, right, we were working with a spice company, let me not name them. And they said, we cannot give you or show you any of our recipes. Use your engine to create new recipes. So we had to send them a disclaimer saying that, look, you know, you need to first test and see if this thing is palatable or is not going to cause you harm before you try it because right. hey, an AI algorithm is going to do something, right? right? I think right. there is no guarantee that uh, you get something edible. Because I think for many of these companies, I think their iconic products are very important and close to their heart. So they don't want to release the recipe in the wild. So they don't want to share any of the recipes, anonymized everything, and uh, wanted the algorithm to run on the anonymized data. So that was an interesting challenge as well. Yeah, I can imagine. All right. And then what happened? And then here I am, financial services cloud. Not as interesting as recipe creation, but the problems are uh, real. And many of our clients are going through this modernization journey. And they are facing the front office applications, which are already externalized, are easy to move to cloud. But when they start to getting into the mid-office and back-office applications, where things have been traditionally running on mainframes, etc., it's very hard to disentangle the legacy environment and be able to move to cloud. 
Okay, I want to dig into that a little deeper, but before we do, maybe because we always do it and I ask the guests on my podcast for their definition of what hybrid cloud actually is, kind of the elevator speech. If someone meets you in the elevator and said, what is hybrid cloud anyway, then what would your answer be? I think we as consumers are already in the middle of hybrid cloud, whether we realize it or not. When we use our phone or something like that, we are probably using dozens of cloud services which basically expand all over the place. I think hybrid cloud is already there. It's more about, as an enterprise, how do we live in this heterogeneous world where services are not really under your control, but you still need to make sure that your sensitive data is secure. And that, to me, is really the challenge of the hybrid cloud. So hybrid cloud is not something in the future. I think we're already living it, whether we realize it or not, as consumers, we're probably five to 10 years ahead of the enterprises, right? In terms of consuming hybrid cloud, because my 90-year-old mom, whether she realizes or not, right? She uses Dropbox, she uses Gmail. They live in two different cloud providers and she uses her phone. You know, all kinds of things are happening, right? And to us as individuals. So hybrid cloud is already a reality. It's more about how do you govern it is where I guess the challenge would be. Sometimes I see the evolution, I feel like years back when this notion of cloud computing first came up, the idea was you're going to basically close down your data center and you're going to move everything into someone else's data center and we call that the cloud and you're going to save tons of money and life will be good, right? And you can fire all of your IT staff. And obviously that didn't happen, right? Because then the realization came in that it's not that simple, Then I feel like we also got to a point where we said, it's not going to be one cloud. I feel like most customers that I talk to have one preferred cloud provider, right? That's what they have some kind of enterprise agreement with. And they said, you know, that's our default place to land. But at the same time, they have bits and pieces all over the place. And, And so it creates a mix, basically. And that's been just like you described, that's been the case for a while. And now The question is, how do I take this spider web of entangled applications and bring it to these places in the right way? Now, on top of all of that, I feel like a more recent thing is to say, I now need specialized clouds. And that's obviously where we get into something like financial services clouds. So cloud is not one thing, but there's different flavors of it. I don't know if you were there in when the, when our financial services cloud was born. Maybe you can talk a bit about how did that happen? How did that get off the ground, so to speak? Yeah, I think uh, there is a commonality in the experience that the financial services clients have as they go through the modernization. And a big part of it is how do they comply with government regulations? Obviously, they deal with highly sensitive data and also data that hackers, including government actors, potentially want to get their hands on or at least uh, peek into it, etc. So highly sensitive data, and they all need to go through this compliance journey. With the current set of cloud providers, other than IBM, they do provide the tools which are necessary in order to achieve the compliance. Maybe not all of them, but maybe to a good degree. But at the same time, they leave that compliance challenge back to the financial company itself. And this basically creates I think a high bar for anybody you know, who wants to bring their core workloads, which are mid and back office type workloads onto cloud. And uh, so the discussion was really, hey, you know, how do we interpret the regulations 
into a set of controls that will be acceptable to financial institutions who want to go not just comply with the regulations in letter but also in spirit. So there is that question of how do the regulations actually translate into cloud-related controls. And secondly, you know, is there a way that we could simplify the journey so the cost of adopting cloud becomes lower? And this, I think, is the genesis of the discussion I think we had with a few banks, you know, Bank of America being one of the key uh, drivers of this discussion, then uh, BNPP in Europe joined us. And now I think we have 60-odd banks, basically, which are part of a financial services cloud council, using that common experience and building upon a common base that everybody could reuse in terms of how they approach compliance. On our side, I think it's about making sure that we have these controls enabled on the cloud. Now, isn't a starting point for any kind of compliance discussion the location? It's an example that we use for why some companies keep their IT on-premise in their own data center, simply because they say the data that we deal with must not leave the country, for example. And unless you have a cloud center in our country, we cannot do business with you. Isn't that the starting point for any kind of regulated cloud conversation as well? Uh, that is a key aspect. I think in some areas like European Union, I mean, uh, yes, things can move across the member countries. I mean, so we could have a data center in Frankfurt that may be acceptable to Spain. But at the same time, even in European Union, I think the French government has laws which require that at least some of the critical functions that banks perform happen inside the country. So yes, I think that is a key aspect of that discussion. Where does your data reside? And with cloud, the way that it uh, operates, I think a provider needs to be at a scale that he operates these data centers uh, in all the locations where the banks typically operate. Uh, otherwise, without that sense of scale, it's more difficult for financial institutions to accept a cloud provider. So that's a challenge as well. Not only is it one data center that we're talking about, many of these guys also require a resiliency, which means that their critical applications span multiple data centers, which are separated by enough geographical distance. So that makes it even more challenging. So you're now talking about at least two data centers with full resilience capabilities in pretty much every region that you want to operate on. So that's a key point. In addition to all the compliance burden, that's a key aspect as well. So is there today or could you imagine a future where we'd have somewhat of a portable, deployable financial services cloud that I could even run in my own data center? Yes. And you hit upon a good point. It's not just the availability of the data centers in these regions, but also commonality of the services, because you don't want to redevelop your payments application for every country that you deploy and tune it to different data centers and how they operate. So a commonality of services and experience from the developer viewpoint is a big part of that story. So it's not just availability of the data centers and the uh, infrastructure capabilities. It's also how is the path set up? What about the managed services that everybody relies on these days, right? Nobody implements databases, et cetera, on their own. So how do we provide the common unified experience is a big part of this challenge. I can imagine that there's a lot of lower level regulations that go into, you need to encrypt your data, you need to have redundancy of data, you know, things like that, like the examples you mentioned. 
But isn't there in general a challenge to say compliance often starts with a document, a piece of paper that describes regulations that then needs to be somewhat codified and automated. Is that part of the whole process that I start out with a government regulation for a particular country and it's written in a 500 page document? Now I have that document and I now need to implement that. Yes. What's the process that we use to do that kind of thing? It used to be a very bespoke process. Uh, in fact, many of the banks, whether they work with us or with other cloud providers, they have to have an internal team run by their own CISO, which interprets the regulations and says, hey, this is how we're going to be stay in compliance with these regulations. We have, for example, a consulting group from Entry, which uh, offers these type of services to banks. There are other consulting companies who offer similar services as well. So there is a question of how do you interpret the regulations and how do they translate into specific IT requirements? I think, you know, hey, you should encrypt your data at rest. It seems common sense. And which regulations would that satisfy? Is that enough? Uh, do you also need to encrypt your data in transit? Is that enough for certain critical applications? Maybe you want to encrypt the entire execution so people cannot peek into memory and basically reverse engineer things. So depending on the type of workload, the type of regulations, yes, people are doing that interpretation. So typically then the controls go into a control set on how they would want to implement this. And then the question is, if they choose a cloud provider, what does it take to implement this control set on the cloud provider? But these days, IBM provides AI-infused services to do some of these mapping, et cetera, simplify the burden. But this is a process where the legal and technical experts need to get involved. Okay. You mentioned Bank of America, and so I assume the beginnings of this FS cloud were in, in North America yeah. and then spread into Europe. Do you have to start over so you can say, well, now let's read the French and the EU regulations and let's see what we need to do over there? And how much do they have in common? They do have a number of principles in common. For example, encrypting the data. How do you allow ingress and egress into your workloads? How do you make sure that there is separation of responsibilities between the cloud provider and the system administrators, etc.? So there are a number of these principles. Many of them are common. So if you pick, for example, the NIST standard uh, in the U.S. and compare it with what the French government or the German government looks at, there is a big degree of commonality. But then there are some specific things where, uh, for example, uh, cloud typically, I think, is operated in a, as a global operation from many of the cloud providers. I think, you know, some of these countries want local control. So what happens in a situation like what is being now played out in Europe? In that case, then sometimes I think it's important that the people who operate your cloud are beholden to your government so that they are not influenced by foreign countries. They need, I think, local control, maybe non-technical aspects of this journey could be different. And this depends on where you operate uh, and the geopolitical situation and what type of risks they see. But many of the technical controls, there is, I think, a lot of commonality there. Yeah, and I've actually heard that example where it's not only does the data center and the data have to reside within the EU, the people working on that also need to have an EU passport, for example. They need to be Europeans, right? Yes. Um, which I guess if you want to do a 24 by 7 kind of operation, that's challenging. 
Yeah, exactly. I think the economies of scale come because of our freedom in choosing how we operate some of the services. Maybe some services we locate in a certain country because we have a group of people who provide those services. They are all co-located together. It makes more financial sense for the cloud operator to do that. But then how does that work? This kind of setting where the government has a different perspective. So yeah, there are challenges in here. But in some sense, I think there is cross-governmental organizations. In Europe, there is a European Cloud Users Council who are trying to make broader uh, set of recommendations. And then the governments basically then look at them and maybe adopt them. Because you can go also too far in some of these regulations and then just make it impossible in order to move some of the workloads to cloud. I think people are slowly starting to feel more comfortable with cloud, but it's a journey. So if you look back on the past few years as you were building this out, can you give an example of something that was particularly difficult? Like here was a really tough challenge to overcome and it took a long time and hard work to do it? Yeah, I think this whole compliance and controls space, nobody has a complete answer. It is just in the case of IBM, because of our legacy of working with financial institutions and understanding how they operate, because we've been operating their data centers for a long time, I think we have an incumbency advantage. Another area I would say is the advantage of working in the cloud is to be able to leverage other providers like ISVs and leverage that ecosystem. But laws and regulations and recent hacks prevents people from bringing their more sensitive workloads out into a cloud. And when I say more sensitive, when you look at financial institutions, they would classify about 70 to 80% of their workloads as sensitive. So it's a majority of their workloads in order for them to feel comfortable to be on the cloud requires us to evolve how we do AI, how we do compliance, and how we operate in a multi-cloud world in a secure manner. And that, I think, is a key challenge that I think we'll continue to face. We have solved some parts of that puzzle. And with the help of IBM Research, right, we continue to innovate on the AI space, in the quantum space with quantum-safe cryptography, etc. But I would say that it's an ongoing challenge that we'll continue to face. Now, since you mentioned 70 to 80% of the workloads, isn't it true that many banks, if not all of them, are running part of their core IT systems on mainframes. And so what's the mainframe side to this? Are you supporting mainframe workloads in the FS cloud? In my view, I think mainframes continue to have a critical role and they do certain aspects of their job very well. For example, transaction processing, etc. Could you do it on the cloud? Potentially, yes, but it would take a long time to untangle how the code has been written and compiled over a very long period of time. But also, I think in terms of the efficiency of processing, the uh, level of resilience that they need. I mean, these workloads cannot stop. They need to continue to run 24 by 7. And even the best cloud providers, availability and reliability ratings leave things to be deserved. So what I would say is that we need to figure out what is the strategy of where mainframe would work with cloud in a synergistic fashion. That is the direction that we have been trying to go towards. Leave the things that where the mainframe is good at doing these things on the mainframe while making sure that if you want to run some analytics workloads or things like that, things that require GPUs and whatnot, you should be able to run these 
on the cloud, which means security aspects need to be solved, which also means how does the data basically move back and forth? What about latency? What about throughput? There are many challenges to be solved in order to figure out what is the best, most efficient mechanism for mainframes and cloud to coexist. And some of the mainframe capabilities will be available on the cloud dev test capabilities and even some of our Z mainframe capabilities are starting to show up on the cloud. So you can run similar workloads on the cloud as well. Right now where we are is we are trying to figure out, I think, what is the best way that cloud workloads and the mainframe world can coexist together. We have several patterns that clients are starting to use depending on the type of workload, but over time this will evolve. I, what I really don't see is a world where uh, mainframe completely goes away because it doesn't really make sense. The transactional workloads, etc., where it already does its job and it has a clear advantage, I think will continue to be there, whereas other things which surround this can potentially run on the cloud. Okay. Let's move on to kind of the next stage in the life cycle. So we talked a lot about how do you build this up, how you define and configure this in accordance to regulations. Assume now you have this up and running. How do you monitor and ultimately audit this? Because I feel like that's obviously an important part of compliance too, is that you need to be able to prove yeah. to an outside party that you are indeed compliant. How does that work? That's a tough question because things evolve over time. So what you mean by compliant now may not meet the regulatory burden a year from now because new regulations have come up. They have seen a new attack vectors, so they have tightened something. So there is the evolution of the regulatory framework itself. And secondly, I think as people operate in this multi-cloud, hybrid cloud environment, then your IT and the data center itself is evolving as well. And that means that's been done like six months ago. It's probably not relevant anymore. So it needs to be a continuous cycle of audit and uh, compliance that needs to be run periodically in the background. So that is, I think, the direction towards which the tooling and many of our uh, clients are starting to go towards. But it's a tough thing to maintain, especially in a very heterogeneous environment. And I think one of the big challenges that I would say in this whole space is that there are too many tools. There are tools that, for example, you pick the logging and monitoring space, uh, depending on what level of logging and monitoring you do, you want to check your applications or the underlying infrastructure, etc. There are a huge number of tools with overlapping functionality. And this needs to be resolved over time as well as to what tools operate best in a hybrid cloud environment and that provide more unified experience because currently I think it's, it's just death by too many tools is uh, what's happening to many of our folks. There is a limit to which I think people can consume information. By the way, there is some research behind this. When I was in research, there was a discussion about how many friends does a person have? It turns out that there is a limit to how many people we can keep in our head. I think we start losing context once we go beyond, let's say, 100 to 150 people. In some similar sense, there is a amount of information that people can absorb. If 10 tools start throwing alerts at you, at some point, you'll just start ignoring them. So they'll just become useless because there are just too many of them and they're too disconnected, and you can't really make all those connections in your own mind. And by the way, I don't want to throw AI into the mix and say that AI is going to solve the problem. It's not. The thing is, I think we really need to think about what is important to us and what are the few things that we need to do to manage this environment. Okay. We're slowly running out of time here, but there's two more things I wanted to ask you before we leave. One is, 
We talked a lot about financial services cloud, and you mentioned that's banks running those. Do you foresee that similar fit-for-purpose clouds will emerge for other industries as well? I know we have clouds, for example, specifically for government. That's obviously highly regulated area as well. But I could even think of pharmaceutical, food, things like that, where there is regulations in place. So do you foresee the emergence of all kinds of specialized clouds for these industries? Yes, I think what will happen is that financial services and government has a very specific requirement. So they cannot work with certain ISVs unless they follow certain rules. Some of the other guys, they have a similar common denominator of what is acceptable. So if you go to, let's say, uh, a telco company, you go to a travel and transportation company, it's not that they are they don't care about security, but their bar is such that a common set of services uh, potentially could be enough for them and a common approach could be enough. But still, I think where the differentiation would be in each industry, there is a question of what type of data do they consume and what do they do with their data? And that is where I think there will be differentiation across the different industries. Like, for example, what one would do in travel and transportation, the type of analytics that they would run uh, is not standard AI. It's more operations research, scheduling. It has its own flavor. There are certain companies which specialize in it. And one of the key things that we learned as we do this evolution to cloud is that uh, there is uh, the notion of data gravity. Once your data goes to a certain place and there is, let's say that you have a petabyte of data, you land it in a cloud and you're doing certain operations, it makes sense for the compute to come to where the operations happen rather than replicating the data to a different place. So part of the challenge is that how we bring our tools to where the data currently operates. That will be, I think, a key aspect of that industry journey as well. But my take is for many of the industries, compliance won't be the key differentiator, but maybe artificial intelligence models, specialized workflows, automation. These are things that I think will become specialized for certain industries. And there will be ISVs who are focused on certain niche areas, and I think they will lead the way. All right. Last final question. Do you have an example of something that you're working on right now that is especially cool and that gets you excited and gets you want to get out of bed in the morning and get to work? Uh, a few things. I think, as I mentioned, I think some of the challenges that we have around solving these compliance-related challenges, although it may seem compliance is not as uh, interesting to the common person, but when you look beyond compliance, we all operate on the cloud. As well as companies, they operate on the cloud. So they are generating data on the cloud, just like, for example, you do web searches and Google collects the information and then provides better search results back to you. And they're using it in many different ways to understand your own personal interests, whether you like it or not. They are using this information in a lot of different ways. Think about all the information that we generate or the companies generate as they operate on the cloud. So it's not just about compliance, but if you think about the audit logs and the logs that are being generated, etc., and you look across, let's say, a big sector of companies, right, like financial sector or something like that, you can now start thinking about in the next generation, maybe the prior generation is about monetizing web traffic. Maybe there is future use of how do people interpret this cloud traffic to get interesting results. 
maybe you could predict your financial performance by how many instances of your machine are running or other things. So your cloud operations generate petabytes of data on a weekly basis. How can companies monetize that? How can we provide better, let's say, information back to the clients so that they can use it to improve their operations? So that, I think, is very much a greenfield area. That's a cool area for financial services clients as well as others as well. Okay. All right. Very cool. Well, thank you so much. This was uh, some great insights you shared there. Thanks a lot for coming today. Okay. Thank you, Andre, for having me and looking forward to talking to you again. All right. Thank you. With that, we're going to wrap up today's episode. Thank you all for listening and hope to see you all soon. Bye-bye.